0: everyone. I'm Esther Pam sloan Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're speaking with Ani the founder of Intelligent Impact, fellow at Oxford and the London School of Economics, entrepreneur in residence at the School Center, and author of the new book, Adventure Finance, How to Create a Funding Journey that Blends Profit and Purpose. Ani, thanks for joining us.
1: Lovely to be here.
0: Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what led you to impact investing?
1: So I actually grew up in Minnesota, and I've loved finance since I was a little kid. My dad used to have me read the Wall Street Journal and pick out stocks um, that I would follow and things that I would discuss. So I, I actually didn't study finance. I studied international political economy as an undergrad and then moved on to do investment banking as you did when you were a bright young thing in the mid 2000s and I would say pretty early realization that I didn't want to spend my life um, making rich people richer and helping companies that were having a questionable at best impact on society so My journey to impact investing also leads into my travel. So I read this book by Muhammad Yunus, and it was really about social business. So it wasn't even his first on microfinance. It was a later one. And it really changed the way I thought about how finance and business could work. So I ended up uh, leaving after a few years of my investment banking career and doing a year of travel, which ended up with me living in India and working for United Capital, which at the time was one of the few investment banks for social enterprises. And so I, I knew I wanted to do impact investing. It wasn't even really, it was just barely called that. This was 2009. So it was brand new. Recruiters had no idea what I was talking about. But I got a connection and was able to go and help United Capital start to transition towards providing equity services as well as debt services. And that really opened me up and started my journey in impact investing.
0: And so that was a position in India. You currently are based in South Africa, where one of your many jobs is teaching the Impact Investing in Africa course at the University of Cape Town. And for full disclosure to our listeners, I am currently taking this course, as well as six of my colleagues here at UNCDF, and we're finding it so useful and relevant to our day to day work. So how did you make your way from India to South Africa?
1: I went to Oxford to do my MBA after I had been working at UNAMS for a bit. And then I was in Ghana working with MEST, the Meltwater Entrepreneurial School of Technology. And then back to the UK, I've created a bit of a hybrid career now. I like to say that you can describe me as the four A's. So I'm an academic, I'm an advisor, I'm an angel investor, and now I'm an author so all around innovative financing in particular as a part of impact investing so the thing that's really driven me for the past 11 years has been the need to design financing structures that actually work for impact not just moving money to impact and it was pretty small and I would say a little lonely at the beginning because obviously we were just trying to get money into impact investing but I've really been focused on how do we design the right ways to allocate capital and so it's taken me to all these different places and created different roles and I try and be as useful as I can in the industry and I think that's where a lot of the work that I've done has come up by just looking around and saying what's needed. And then going out and finding the funding or just doing it and hoping that the funding comes afterwards. So it's a variety of different roles.
0: That's fantastic. One, the fact that you are teaching at business schools while actively being a practitioner so that you are linking the practice to the theory, which sometimes doesn't happen. And also that you're focusing on systems change. And we've had many discussions about this here at UNCDF, that the way that we are trying to change economies is not about transactions only. It's not about getting one deal funded or one business funded. It's about structurally changing the way that money moves in LDC markets so that it can be more equitable and have more impact. So we're really glad to see that you have that focus as well, because we, of course, share that emphasis. So let's talk about your new book, Adventure Finance. You say the modern venture capital model doesn't work for 99% of startups and small businesses. Why not?
1: It's a play on venture finance and adventure finance. So that's the play in the title. And the book is basically written out of my desperation to have some place that people can go to understand the set of options that are available for early stage and small businesses that are interested in building profitable and purpose-driven companies. So it's the first in my trilogy of books that I'm writing. So the next one will be on fund structures. And then the final one will be on market structures, which we can leave for another conversation. But essentially, my goal over the next five years is to really have out in public a roadmap for how we can transform financial systems from all the way from very early stage deals to very market-based but system-wide mechanisms that help us to be able to link impact to capital. So this book starts off with the premise that venture capital doesn't work for most startups. And just numbers-wise, it's completely true. And it particularly doesn't necessarily work for early-stage businesses that are impact or purpose-driven. So the book, what it does is it lays out a variety of structures that are alternatives to traditional venture capital and bank debt. But it does it through stories. So the goal here was to make it completely approachable and accessible to anyone. I had high school students read the book (laughs) to make sure that it was readable and I had to edit it based off of all of their comments. And so it's these series of stories and also these frameworks that really walk through redesigning how founders and funders think about approaching their funding journey, as I call it. And recognizing that there's lots of different needs that entrepreneurs have and even nonprofits. So it's written for nonprofits and for profits. And so introducing them to these different options and talking about their relevance and applicability to different types of companies.
0: Absolutely. And we have had discussions on this podcast about the shockingly low amount of VC finance that reaches female entrepreneurs, much less female entrepreneurs of color or entrepreneurs of color. And there are academic studies proving that there's so much embedded in the process that that it's essentially a flawed process from the start because it's a model that rewards pattern recognition of things that you've already done. So it's actually a super inefficient way to find new successes. I think this is also a really interesting question because as you say, very few companies have this hockey stick growth curve, yet that's what all VCs are looking for. So how do regular companies that are just family-owned hardware store businesses or your average standard business that is the cornerstone of a community, how did those guys get funding? Since that's probably most of the businesses that exist, right?
1: So really two reasons. One is that anytime a venture capitalist is making an investment, they have exponential growth expectations. The way the model works is that you put money into a very small company and you need it to become a very large company and create an exit for you as an investor very small companies to become very large companies in a short period of time means they have to grow exponentially. And this is fine for a very small subset of companies, but for the rest of the companies that don't have exponential growth expectations or don't want to grow that way or are not seen to be able to grow that way, it means that they cannot access risk capital from VCs. So it's designed for a very small subset, and yet it is the predominant form of risky capital that's available to small businesses. So it means that there's a whole set of businesses that need risk capital that don't subscribe to that very specific use set. And then that is compounded by a lack of inclusivity in the VC world.
0: That's great. And what pragmatic and practical suggestions. I think it's probably wonderful for entrepreneurs to hear that they should keep control of their company for as long as possible and that they want to make sure that whoever's lending the money has the same goals that they do. Because- We have definitely met entrepreneurs who have misaligned their needs with financing that came in and tried to grow the business, pile on tons of debt, and do things that they were not comfortable with, and they had to break that relationship. I also think it's fantastic that you're pointing out that there's different colors of money. And we talk about this a lot in the aid space, that there's money that wants to be pure grant. There's money that can seek a lower return. There's money that can be invested to catalyze other money. So of course, in the VC space, there are different colors of money as well. And so as the entrepreneur, you want to make sure that you're matching the colors of your money with kind of your intentions. So you point out, Ani, some of the entrepreneurs that have a hard time raising money, female founders, those from diverse racial backgrounds, those located outside major venture hubs and those running purpose-driven enterprises. So you've mentioned some of the methods that you've seen for how they can go around raising money but what other methods have you seen that help them overcome the challenges of accessing finance?
1: It's a large preponderance of the businesses that exist. Historically, what they've done is found ways to do with credit card debt, trying to find VC funding or trying to find debt or just growing very organically, which is also not a bad option. So the goal of the book and just in general is speaking to entrepreneurs that don't find that they fit the mold of VC capital or that think that they do, but actually do not. I have some specific pieces of advice. So one is understanding what type of capital you actually need because different types of capital work for different parts of growth. So whether you're looking for working capital or for growth capital or to buy assets, these all require different types of growth and people just lump it all into one. Another is being really purposeful in researching funders that you are actually aligned with, as opposed to more a scattershot approach where you just try and talk to everybody. So being very specific about what you're trying to achieve as a business, as a profit and purpose-driven business or as a nonprofit, and then finding funders that are very aligned with that, again, with the right type of capital. Then another thing that I do often say is that try and avoid raising outside capital if you can for as long as possible. A lot of companies think that's what you do. You have a business idea and you go out and fund it to be able to build it. And I know that it's not possible for a lot of entrepreneurs that come from backgrounds where they can't work for free for a long time. But if possible, I tell people to try and go out, find some grant funding, some R and D funding to get a little bit off the ground, but then try and use internal finance, sell stuff before you go out and try and get external finance, if possible. And one of the things that I do in my teaching is I have a set of innovative revenue streams that I teach. And it's actually materials available on my MOOC, which is a free online course on Coursera called Innovative Finance. And that walks entrepreneurs through both a set of um, revenue streams as well as financing options. So we're really trying to get creative, particularly for impact entrepreneurs around what impact are you creating for whom and how do you monetize it? And those are some of the pieces. And then just lastly, the last thing is alternative types of capital. So, for instance, I've got a couple of examples from the book here. So, revenue-based financing is essentially financing that relies on historical revenues and then you repay it as a percentage of future revenues. It's a great option for fast-growing, high-margin businesses and doesn't require the sale of ownership. Factoring is where you use your purchase orders or invoices to be able to get access to working capital. Supply chain financing is where you have customers prepay or pay early for your goods, so you have a lower working capital need. Redeemable equity allows founders to repurchase some of their shares from funders after they've been funded. And then finally, crowdfunding is exploding globally. The regulation is getting a bit easier, and it really provides a great option for organizations that are particularly really connected to their end users and consumers to be able to tap them for some of the capital that they need.
0: what does the VC world need to do to become more inclusive and purpose-driven?
1: So I also have a set of actionable ideas for VCs and for funders that are interested in funding risk capital. So one of the first things is to think about how you can be more peer-driven and community-engaged in your due diligence and selection of deals. So village capital does this really well. The village capital model that essentially relies on the organizations within a program to actually choose who gets funding from their acceleration program. Crowdfunding is another example, as we talked about, but just having more engagement with the organizations that you are trying to fund and, or the end users that you're trying to engage with and pulling them into due diligence and into how you select companies. Also more diverse and inclusive hiring practices. This is not limited to just funders that are focused on underrepresented founders, but just in general, having people with diverse backgrounds within VCs that are not completely overrepresented will change decision-making patterns. And then another is more innovative funding models that don't necessarily require exponential growth that, as some of them that I've started to mention, venture debt's an interesting one for venture capital funders, mezzanine debt, redeemable equity where you can repay or revive shares intentional funding patterns that address implicit biases. How do you actually go out and look for specific types of founders that are in underrepresented markets, that have underrepresented backgrounds, and being very intentional about growing those networks from VCs? And then one of the things I would love to see VCs do better, and this is What I see as being the next stage of impact investing as well is trying to help companies actually transition to employee or community ownership. So actually using your investment to help more people create wealth as opposed to a few people create wealth. And that will also speak to the types of companies that they're able to invest in. So there's a lot that funders can do to really rectify some of the inequalities and inequities in the current funding market.
0: So you're calling for some pretty radical changes, Ani, and I would love to think there are VCs out there who would want to hand over ownership of their companies to employees, but I suspect that they're a minority. So given the kind of commercial pressures on the industry, I mean, I think what you're calling for is a wholesale rethinking of how VC works, right? What is the purpose of a structure that makes rich people richer and that makes you need money before you can make new money? how do we make it more inclusive? What is your sense of how open the industry is to these essentially pretty radical ideas?
1: It's a really good question. So essentially, the idea is that we need to completely redesign how we think about risk and what a good return looks like. So just to get a little bit wonky, how VC portfolios work, essentially, if you've got 10 companies, they assume that one company is going to go 10 times. So it's going to be 10 times bigger, and they're going to exit and get it a huge return, a 10 times return there. They assume that 2 or so may give them a 2 to 3 times return, and then basically the rest of them are either going to return a little bit of their capital or nothing at all. So that equates to around a 2.6 to 3 times return, depending on how you're doing the math. And that's average, and that actually ends up giving you the IRR, which is the venture capital IRR that a lot of people look at, which is high double digit, so like 18 to 22%. That's what essentially investors are looking for, is essentially to triple their money over about seven years. Now, one way to do it is to have this 10 times you're going for exponential growth. A completely different way to do it is actually to say, well, what if 9% out of of those companies actually return two to three times your money? So what I'm not asking them to do necessarily, although I do also do that, is to say you need to make less money, but actually to reconceptualize how your portfolios work. So I'm not asking, maybe other people are, VCs to give up ownership of their companies, rather to look at what types of companies they are funding in the interim. So if you're looking for a company that's likely to return two to three times money over a period of time, it's a different type of company than a company that's gonna go 10 times. It's a more potentially more stable company, it's a fast-growing company, but it doesn't have to be the next Facebook, and it may not be looking to do that. And the arc where that gets to community ownership, which gets quite interesting, is actually looking at community and employee buyouts, where the companies are actually repurchased at, potentially, two to three times the value that VCs put in, and then over time, so there's a debt lender that comes in, provides the debt capital, and over time, employees essentially repurchase that. So that could completely fit in with a new construction of portfolio value. And this is something that funders are already doing. It's just not widespread yet, because frankly, it's much sexier and much more fun to bet on companies that are going to go to 10 times than to do the research and actually find ways to fund companies that are likely going to go to two to three times.
0: It always seemed very inefficient to me that VCs are assuming that six to eight of the companies that they invest in are going to fail right? So it just seems like a better allocation of your money to think that they're all going to succeed, but maybe a little bit less dramatically. And also, let's not forget that the biggest companies today took a lot more than seven years to grow, right? So it seems like really putting handcuffs and very unreasonable expectations on a new idea or an innovation to expect it to become a Facebook in five or six years
1: it's ridiculous and that's the whole thing with fund structures fund structures also need to be longer and if you have this type of liquidity as you're able to create dividends or other types of payments from your companies over the time period then you can actually start to think about fund structures that aren't the traditional 10 year 10 plus one and so then we can start to get really creative about longer term fund structures that actually are able to potentially wait the time that is needed and be able to still return capital to their investors So the thing is, it's radical and actually the whole system needs to be completely and totally blown up and rebuilt. And that's where I've sat for a long time.
0: I love it. Certainly from the perspective of the least developed countries that we serve, they would agree a hundred percent. They have these massive needs and there's so much money in the world and it's not reaching them. So from their perspective, the system needs to be radically rechanged as well. So you'll have a lot of supporters there from the least developed countries. So Auni, you teach a course that we had mentioned before at the University of Cape Town Graduate School of Business called Impact Investing in Africa. Please tell us about that
1: sure so 10 years ago I worked on the creation of the impact investing executive course at Oxford which was the first of its kind in the market and when I then moved to South Africa a couple of years later I saw a gap for a course that focused on the continent so it was eight years ago now that we got funding from a funder from actually the Flemish government to be able to put together the course because I had to build the whole thing from scratch there was almost no case studies there was no content and even at the beginning we struggle to find speakers with the right expertise because there were plenty of people on the continent they were doing the work but to be able to build up all the different pieces so we've run it seven times now and it's now a six-week online course which we took online last year and it covers how to source deals due diligence f- structure deals structure funds do impact measurement and management and more and it's we have leaders from impact investing in africa as well as globally come speak can we still use our bespoke created case studies for the students to really dive in. So we're going to be going back in person in 2022. We're actually going to keep the online course because we've had such great response and such great experience being able to pull in speakers and participants from all over the world. And after this cohort, we'll have nearly 400 alumni of Impact Investors in Africa.
0: And I will be very proud to be one of them. For our listeners, I was actually recommended this course from a previous graduate, Henning Ringholtz from the Small Hi. Foundation. So I know Henning and he was on the podcast and he had posted about it on LinkedIn. And we were just at that time at UNCDF thinking that many of our colleagues in evaluation and policy in the partnerships unit needed to know more about how this whole structuring of deals worked. And so seven of us are taking it. And I have to say, it's excellent. The homework is a little heavy but it's so deep and it's such a great introduction, both to the theory that goes behind the field and then amazing practitioners from across Africa. So it's been wonderful for us. So thank you for your leadership on that. Why is this the only course in Africa?
1: It's a great question. I don't know, tell me. I really thought I would have more competition seven years on, I wish I did. I- I've tried to help others actually create competition and it hasn't worked, so.
0: Especially so- because there's so much activity right? I mean, you have entrepreneurs from all across Africa who are doing such fabulous work. I would think that it would match the entrepreneurial activity that we're seeing across Africa, which is tremendous.
1: I have no ideas. It is, I mean, it's a lot of work. Let's just be honest. This course is a huge ton of work recruiting the students every year. We have a considerable cohort every single year of incredible people. We do focus only on investors in the course. There are quite a few courses that are available for entrepreneurs, but we do focus on investors. But I think there's still a perception that there's just not enough economic activity to be able to have big funds, I think, in Africa. But I'm hoping in five years that there's a ton of different courses and there's a lot of different options to be able to do this. But for now, UCTs is the only one.
0: We hope so too. And we also hope that there's more money flooding into these African funds because we definitely see from our work at UNCDF and then also from the course that there's so many great ideas and fantastic entrepreneurs all across the continent. So we will do our best to spread the word. So Ami, one of your A's is that you're an angel investor and you're a member of an angel investing group called Dazzle Angels. What does that do?
1: So Dazzle Angels, we created, it's based off of the idea of zebras. So zebras are a type of company that's not a unicorn. So it's a social enterprise that is looking for profit and purpose. So this was an idea that was created by a group of women out of the States. And there's a whole community around Zebras Unite that I'd encourage you to look up this is a global community. But So a Dazzle is a group of zebra. So we are the Dazzle Angels and we invest in female founders in South Africa. We do ticket sizes of about 20 to 25,000 US dollars and we've made three investments so far and it looks as if we are hot on the heels of our fourth and fifth, so stay tuned there. But it's been really fun. Part of the idea is to get more money to female founders, but also to have more angels. So we actually have 20 angels in the group and we'll probably have another fund at later points that, that we'll invite more into.
0: And I'm hearing more about this, Ani, and it really is fascinating to me that the idea that there can be investing clubs the way there are book clubs, Mm -hmm. so that people would buy in, they would look at deals together, and then they would push money out the door to support female founders, entrepreneurs of color. Do you see appetite for this type of structure to spread?
1: Absolutely. It blurs the line between kind of angel investing and crowdfunding, really. And so we're seeing these micro funds that are popping up. There's a new one in Nigeria that came up a few months ago now. There's such appetites for options for individuals to take action and you don't have to be super wealthy. People have always thought that angel investors were millionaires that had made a bunch of money that could put money back into the system. But the whole thing is that there's lots of people that are keen to be involved with early stage businesses and being able to do it in a group of like-minded women's a really fun way. There's quite a few of these that are growing, and I'd actually love to see, we did a piece of work with Duke University for USAID, actually, specifically on how do they help catalyze more angel investors in emerging markets. And so I'd love to see more institutional or development institutions really encouraging the setup, the creation, and the running of more of these micro funds, because people on the ground have so much to offer than just cash. The cash is important, but also the networks and the mentorship and the expertise, and it's just all a win. When getting more people to engage with more entrepreneurs.
0: And I think it's really great that you make the point, you don't need tons of money. $20,000 US in South Africa goes a long way. That could really meet an entrepreneur's needs for quite a while.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when you divide that by 20 women, then suddenly it becomes a much more achievable amount.
0: Thank you very much. I will take that into consideration. We'll see what UNCDF can do to encourage this new kind of group. And finally, Ani, as we look to wrap up, what one thing would you change if you could to accelerate the flow of finance to worthy entrepreneurs?
1: Obviously, just to read my book, that is going to be a good thing. <laughs> so I don't have just one thing, but I have a couple of things. So there's a real need for more transparency. So who funds what? Deal platforms have historically just failed. I mean, there's, I think there's a lot to do with the business models behind those, but it would be great to have more transparency so it is easier to identify funders. And then my biggest one, which is why I wrote the book, is creating more options. So in the book, I talk about all of these innovative funding options that can help founders align their capital needs with their capital raise or capital raises and so I'd love funders to have bigger more relevant toolkits with lots of options in them and for founders to have a better understanding of what types of capital can help them grow and scale their businesses and I think if we had those two things in place more educated founders around what their options are and what's best for their company and funders that were willing to try and experiment with different types of funding that actually work for entrepreneurs then I think the system would start to work out some of the kinks that currently cause some of the mismatch.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for everything that you're doing to build the field and grow the ecosystem of impact investing. And thanks for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you also to our audience for tuning into UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.